Welcome to the Layman's Guide to the Lectionary with your host, Pastor Steve Andrews. This weekend our churches celebrate Holy Trinity Sunday, and it is, again, year B on the calendar for us. We have some repetition in our scripture readings as the epistle text from Acts chapter 2, it's verse 14a, and it cuts out the opening of the sermon and skips to verses 22 to 36. That's actually read in our churches every year on Trinity Sunday as the epistle text. The Old Testament reading is Isaiah chapter 6 verses 1 through 8. That is a year C reading as well, near the end of the season of Epiphany on the fifth Sunday after the Epiphany. And even the Gospel reading from John chapter 3 verses 1 through 17 That's a year A text on the second Sunday in the season of Lent. So all three of our readings today are read in our churches twice in that three-year rotation. We're going to start out with the Old Testament reading from Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. This is actually a very common text to be read at pastoral installations or even ordinations. If you have a new pastor coming into the office of the ministry, or if your church is just calling a new pastor and he's already been serving in the ministry for a while. So this is read at a lot of those. When I first came out of the seminary, I remember visiting and going to as many of those for my classmates or the others in in my community that I could. And, you know, you take the family with you. So my wife and I would go together and it didn't take long before in the year that King Uzziah died became like a almost a joke in our household because we were hearing it so often. Not to make light of scripture, just just a little family humor as we would start scriptures or we would share things together. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings, with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is Yahweh of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke, and I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, Yahweh of hosts. We'll pause there. We'll cover the rest of the text here in a bit. The year that King Uzziah died would be roughly 740 B.C. So that's the year that Isaiah is anointed to be a prophet. He's brought into the service of God's word. He's going to speak whatever the Lord has him speak to the people. And his his time as a prophet, the beginning of it is described to us here in the text. It begins with a vision, a vision from Yahweh to Isaiah. Verse 1, really, we can't miss this. It's easy to miss, actually, but we, we shouldn't miss. King Uzziah died. I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne. Do you see that? The earthly king of God's people dies. But the true king, Yahweh himself, he is still seated on the throne. Earthly rulers come and go. But God is there always. Don't overlook that, as simple as it would be to read right past it. He sees him high and lifted up, seated upon a throne, so he's exalted. He has that place of honor. And then we see that his train, the train of his robe, so the the garment itself, fills the temple. That's quite a picture, right? You've seen, I'm sure you've seen some of the pictures of, of women with their their wedding dresses that are so crazy, so big uh, that they take up so much space, and the you know the train stretches for for feet after feet there, yards. Those pictures don't even come close to this. God's robe, 
which we could interestingly think of as the robe of Christ's righteousness, right? To use a New Testament phrase. Fills the temple. Fills it. There's no room in the temple because the Lord has filled the temple. And it's not just the robe that fills the temple, as we'll see down again in verse 4, that the smoke fills the temple. We'll come back to that. So the temple is the place of God's throne. It is the place where he has promised to dwell in the midst of his people. It's the place from which he has promised he will speak his word to his people. And here he is, fulfilling that promise. He's staying in the temple. He's filling the temple, dwelling with his people, and putting his word into a prophet's mouth that his word would be delivered to the people. Verse 2, we have a reference to angels, plural, seraphim. A lot of people say seraphim. I like eming the ending of that because the Hebrew language, it's it's just how it's pronounced, the dual ending in the Hebrew, which also means it is plural. You know, a, a seraph would be singular if you want to make it plural, seraphim. And each of these seraphim, they have six wings on them. It's not the typical picture of an angel that we see, is it? We think of angels tend to have just two wings in our view. And there are different types of angels. You know, you've got the the cherub or the cherubim is another type that's mentioned in Scripture. We just don't know a lot about the angels. But here is a kind of angel that has six wings. And you see them in pairs functioning together. Two of them, he covers his face. Why would he cover his face? Is it for Isaiah's sake or his own? We know that when angels appear, they tend to have to tell people, do not be afraid. So we could see that perspective, right? It doesn't seem likely that this is for the angel's protection from Isaiah in any way. Not even from Isaiah's uncleanness, because the angel's going to go right up to him when we finish the text. So two, he covers his face. Two, he covers his feet. Why is he covering his feet? There's certainly the Old Testament and New Testament. The cultural idea of feet as being an ugly thing because they were always dirty. But would that really pertain to an angel? The angels aren't walking around in open-toed shoes in in Jerusalem's dirt dirt roads, Judea's dirt roads. They're hanging out in heaven with God. Sometimes. They're flying around doing whatever it is that angels do in the meantime when they're not delivering messages. As they do battle with the devil's angels, we call them demons. We do know that we have the Isaiah passage later in the book about how beautiful are the feet of him who brings good news, and angels do do that, so there is a beauty to their feet. I don't know. Two, he covers his face. Two, he covers his feet, and with two, he flies. That one, that's the one most people think of when they think of the wings of an angel, that it uses them to fly. But if there's some kind of a holiness thing going on with the first two, it's a possibility. Now, the seraphim are calling out to each other. And this is, that sounds like it's in words rather than in song, but it's certainly possible that they could be calling out to each other in song as well. To sing uh, projects your voice farther, further than it does to speak or to yell shout holy 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 is Yahweh of hosts pause on that holy 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 three times over this is Trinity Sunday so is this a Trinitarian reference Eh, maybe it's a bit of a stretch Yahweh of hosts the Hebrew there is better translated armies so the holy trinity holy 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 is Yahweh of hosts armies And who is his army? Well, you do have the angels. They're his angelic army. You remember Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane when Peter slices off Malchus' ear. 
Jesus tells him to put the sword away and that if he wanted to, he could summon legions of angels to defend him. But he didn't. That would have defeated the purpose. But angels are an army in that sense. They're also an army of messengers, just as the church is today, right? God actually calls his people of Israel this. Uh, as he brings them up out of the land of Egypt, out of their slavery in Egypt, he calls them the same Hebrew word. He refers to them he br- that he brought up the hosts out of the land of Egypt. So Yahweh of armies as in the angels, Yahweh of armies as in the church, that we would go about serving him in this world, uh, working for the good of his kingdom. The whole earth is full of his glory. So not just the temple in that way, but all of creation. All of creation was made by him. He loves it. He cares for it. He provides for it even to this day. All of creation points us to God. The beauty and the intricacy and the things that we continue to learn from science as we study God's creation, they're incredible. There's no way this was an accident. At some point, it's not even mathematically possible anymore for it to have been an accident. This creation is that complex. And again, it shows his glory. It points us to God. Verse 4, that the thresholds, the foundations of the thresholds shook. It could be a reference to the temple, because again, where this vision is taking place in the temple or at the temple, or it could be a reference directly to the earth upon which the temple sits, and you then have the voice of the angel calling out to Isaiah. Well, calling out to each other. Or is it the angel? This is singular, the voice of him who called. The house was filled with smoke. That's a sign of God's presence. The Lord appears as smoke. This isn't the first time in the Old Testament that he's done so. His his appearance of smoke has filled the temple before. When you think of the consecration of the temple. You could even maybe think back to the covenant God made with Abram. I think that's Genesis chapter 15. So perhaps this is the voice of God himself, which would make more sense for why the foundations are shaking at the voice. And it also then makes sense to why Isaiah says what he says in verse 5. Woe is me. Woe is death. And when when the Bible speaks of woe, this is a this is a bad thing. It's a bad outcome. It's the end. I mean this this is over. I'm dead. I'm as good as dead right now. Why? I'll get into that. For I'm lost. So he's acknowledging that he is a sinner. He is a sinful person. He's a man of unclean lips. So he has spoken words that are false. He has You know, he's spoken probably, likely, incorrectly about the Lord, as we all do it at points. As sinners, if we open our mouths enough times, that's bound to happen. He dwells in the midst of a people of unclean lips. They profane the name of the Lord. Four, focus on this four. Woe is me, for my eyes have seen the King. Isaiah is as good as dead because he has come into the presence of Yahweh. And sinners don't come into the presence of a holy God and live. Our sin brings about our damnation, our condemnation. And he's holy, he's God, he is just, he is judge. And so when sin comes before him, it is judged. And so Isaiah is panicking here that he is, he's a goner. He's done for because he has come into the presence of God. Again, think of the Exodus account, Exodus chapter 19. God will not even allow the people of Israel to come near the mountain, let alone touch it, lest they die. 
He has to make that grand exception that Moses can. And this is what we see here as well. God is going to make that exception with Isaiah. And that's the rest of the text. So let's read that. Verses 6 through 8. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. So one of those angels takes a burning coal from the altar using the tongs. So the tongs are holy, one of the holy instruments in the Lord's house. And brings it over to Isaiah. Now, there are two altars when you're talking about the context of the temple. You have the altar of incense that is inside the temple that is used for offering up incense offerings before the Lord. The scriptures are going to compare those to the prayers of the saints as we go through, especially the book of Revelation. The other altar that is possible is the altar of burnt offering, which sits in the temple courtyard, so just outside the temple building itself, And that is where people would bring their sacrifices of animals that would be burned on that altar for the forgiveness of sins, as limited as that forgiveness may have been. That was the priestly work to burn those. The fact that, again, we've been focusing so much on the temple itself likely leads to the understanding that this would be the incense altar. I don't know that I can say that definitively. So the angel, the seraph, takes that burning coal. That's a reference that you can pick up, right? You think of the burning coals as you've grilled before or you've been to a grill grill out, cookout before. Take one of those that's hot, flaming. The angel uses it to touch Isaiah's lips. Ouch! Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin atoned for. Can prayer do that? Technically, the burnt offerings on the altar of burnt offering outside do that a little bit, but you don't normally think of burning coals with that exterior altar. At least I haven't. So again, can't say which altar this is, but what's going on with the guilt being taken away and the sin atoned for? Well, notice what it is and what it isn't. It is true, it is done. And God has done it. Your guilt is taken away. Isaiah has done nothing of this. He has not caused his guilt to be taken away. God has taken it away. Your sin atoned for. Isaiah hasn't atoned for his sin. It's been done for him. God is the one acting here. He's the one doing this, and he's done it for Isaiah. While we may not be able to explain exactly what is going on in verse 7, we can see that much clearly. And so it is for us as the church today. This is what Christ does for his people. He takes our guilt away. He atones for our sins. To atone is to, I like to break it up in the in the word itself. So atone, A-T-O-N-E, chop that word in half, at one. To atone for someone is to make them at one again. So Jesus has atoned for our sins. He's made us at one with the Father. Our sins separated us. But Jesus atoned for us. He brought us back together again. I think that's a helpful little way to understand that word. And Christ does this for us. And so as the burning coal touches Isaiah's lips, so the Lord's Supper, Christ's body and blood, touch your lips and they take your guilt away and your sin is atoned for. It's a good connection to see. Lastly here we have verse 8. Isaiah hears God speak. Whom shall I send? 
and who will go for us. Notice the plural, us. What is the referent there? And you've got a few. Some people make the argument that this is God using the royal we. Royalty likes to speak in that way. We see that in the Genesis creation account as well. You also have the argument here that this would be God and his hosts, you know, Yahweh of hosts, Yahweh of armies, that this is God and the angels. Who's going to go for us? But with this being Holy Trinity Sunday, don't also miss the connection of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that could be at play here and likely why this text is included on Trinity Sunday this year. Isaiah answers, Here I am. Send me. Now that his sin has been atoned for, now that he's been reconciled to God, he has been forgiven, he wants to serve. And he goes on serving. He goes on serving God's people for many years after this. Now, that has applications for us as well. Not that we have been in God's temple and had a burning coal lifted from the altar by an angel's tongs and you know brought over and burned upon our lips to atone for us. But again, we are atoned for. And Christ has taken his body and his blood, which are holy, 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 and he has put them upon our lips. He has atoned for us. He has taken our guilt away. Our sins are forgiven. We are at one with God. And God speaks and says, Whom shall I send? And we say, Here I am. Send me. The Lord has work for his people to do. He has a mission for his church to live out. So go and be his people. Our second reading, not really an epistle again, as Acts is not a letter to the church. It's a history book written by Luke, much like his gospel account is. Um, So our second reading for the weekend, Acts chapter 2, verse 14a, and then 22 to 36. Um, This one's been sliced and diced. This is Pentecost the day uh, the Holy Spirit gets poured out upon God's people and his church, and the apostles in particular start then preaching in tongues. They're sharing the good works that God has done for his people, and they're doing it so that everyone gathered together can hear in his own tongue, his own language, this good news gospel. Men from every nation under heaven is the way Acts 2 records it. So, an incredible miracle. Unfortunately, in our pericope system, our lectionary system, this sermon of Peter's gets broken up into three separate weekends. Last weekend, we had the very beginning of the sermon. And now this weekend, we get the middle of the sermon. So it really did get sliced and diced into different pieces, um, which is in a way unfortunate. But at the same time, it gets us reflecting on the event several times rather than just the once. So there's there's always going to be some give and take here, but we're going to look at the text. Um, we're going to let Peter preach, and we're going to hear what it is that he's preaching to this crowd from the particular verses we're looking at together today. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. So pause. We skip over the rest of 14, the beginning of the sermon. Uh, verses all the way up through 21, and we pick up at verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. 
you will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. I wanted to go ahead and and just put the whole text in front of you instead of breaking this one up like I normally do because it's already been broken up. So we'll take this really as a chunk and just then kind of work our way back through it. The address in verse 22, and the sermon's already gone here, but it's, it's recalling out who this audience is. Men of Israel, these are God's Old Testament people. Many, not all, many abandoned God. We're all sinners. But many have rejected God outright and want nothing to do with this Messiah that he has sent but there are others whose ears are more open. And that is what Pentecost really ends up being for. As the Spirit is poured out on God's church, a wonderful day indeed. The people that first hear and then first join the church are the Jews who clung to the Old Testament. Peter's sermon, the Holy Spirit preaching through Peter, convicts the hearts of these men and brings them to faith. They see the connections. They see the dots bringing them to the idea that Jesus actually is the Messiah that the Old Testament was looking forward to. And so we get, and we don't get it in this text, but we get their response. And we got it a few weeks ago after Easter that they repent and they are baptized, about 3,000 people that day. Incredible gift of God to the church as he begins, really, the New Testament church in such a way. So that's who we're talking about here. That's who Peter's preaching to. Now, not everyone that was there believed, just as it pretty much is any time a pastor preaches a sermon. Not everyone who hears it is going to listen to what is being preached. So he, he addresses the Jews and he says to them, Jesus, so pointing to the Savior, and then he points to his works. We were just talking about this with the Genesis text. How do we describe God? Well, we usually jump right into what God has done. And that's what Peter does in this sermon. What has God done? And so he, he mentions the mighty works and wonders and signs it's pretty well known in the region that over the last three years, Jesus of Nazareth has been doing some pretty amazing things. Now, some believe they're miracles. Some believe that they're signs from God. Some believe that they're uh, works of the devil, as we see Jesus at one point accused. So their beliefs don't all line up on this stuff, but it's hard to have been in the area at that time and not have heard about it. It's also hard to have been in the area at the time and not even been, not just not aware, but not seen. Many of these people would have seen these miracles happen. And that's what Peter is pointing to. That he did in your midst as you yourselves know. You were there. You saw these things happen. This is the guy I'm talking about. 
Jesus. And then he goes into the crucifixion. The definite plan and foreknowledge. What plan? What plan of God is this? What foreknowledge of God is this? So this is God's plan to save his creation, to save his people. And the foreknowledge is the knowledge of what we would do after he created us, that we would reject him, we would turn our backs on him. And so in his foreknowledge, knowing that in advance, he had this divine plan already laid in motion that he was going to lay down his own life to save us from our sin and bring us back to himself. This is all part of the plan. Jesus, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So Peter puts the guilt right there on those people, right there listening to him preach that day. You are guilty of this man's death. You are guilty of the Messiah's death. And it's not just them. It's you and it's me. Anyone who has ever sinned is guilty of Jesus' death. It is our fault. But he did it out of love for us. So that's a law phrase that can easily condemn us and easily convict us. But yet it's the very reason that Jesus did it was to forgive us. The phrase, the hands of lawless men, imagine the having the audacity to actually attempt to kill God. That is lawless. That is apart from. They are without God. They are without his law. But in spite of this, despite, despite the death of Jesus on the cross, despite them being guilty of this, verse 24, God raised him up. And all the many pangs of death, the, the pains of death, have been taken away. It was not possible for death to hold Jesus. And talk about a deep phrase that we can't really comprehend. It's not possible for death to hold Jesus. In some ways we can get it. Jesus defeated death. Jesus rose from death. Jesus promises us resurrection from death. Jesus defeats the enemy that is death. But at the same time, and almost with all the things I just mentioned, it's hard for us to really wrap our minds around that. It's hard for us to see beyond the grave. It's hard for us to, to even really fathom what life is going to be like in this paradise that has been promised. What does it mean that Jesus is victorious over death? means we get to live forever. An incredible gift. Peter then quotes David from Psalm 16. This is verses 8 through 11 of Psalm 16 that we have here in the text, verses 25 through 28 of our our reading. Um, We get the gospel promise. The very end of Matthew's gospel, Jesus would be with us always to the end of the age, is actually the beginning of this quote from David. The Lord is always before me. God is present with his people. And this is a wonderful promise. It's a wonderful thing. He's at my right hand. Uh, the right hand is the, the position of power. It's, it's the dominant side um, in a culture where there just weren't many left-handed people at the time. To be, to be his right hand means he's his strength. He is his weapon. He is his, his sword against it sin and death. He will not be shaken. God's presence is our rock. It is our foundation. And as long as we have faith in Christ, we cannot be shaken. 
It doesn't matter what the world does to us. It doesn't matter what we suffer. Or even why. As long as we are in Christ, the promises and the hope of eternal life cannot be taken from us. We need not fear or worry or doubt. The Lord provides. And so David is glad and he rejoices and he dwells in hope. Hope. This isn't wishy-washy hope. This isn't the idea that, oh, it would sure be nice if the weather is good tomorrow. This is certain. This is a hope that is beyond worldly comprehension. This is a hope that lies in the promises of God. And because it comes from God, it is certain. It is fixed. It cannot be destroyed or defeated. It cannot be taken away from you. This hope is sure. David said that his soul would not be abandoned to Hades. That's a reference to salvation. Hades, um, the underworld, hell, commonly known from Greek mythology by that name. So you have the that cultures around at the time, but simply the, the language common of what was understood as, as being a, a hell, a place of hell. So that's where the phrase is there from. Um, let, or let your Holy One see corruption. This, this is David writing, but it speaks to the future, and that's why Peter is using it. So David is saying his soul will not be abandoned. He's saying his Holy One will not see corruption. But ultimately, this doesn't point to David. This points to Jesus. It points to the Messiah who was to come. And Peter's going to unpack that in the, the paragraph that comes. You have made known to me the paths of life. This is Thomas in John 14, verse 5. As Jesus has already said that they can follow him, they, they'll know the way where he's going. And Thomas responds, essentially asking, we don't even know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus' answer in fourteen six is, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So you've shown me the paths of life. It is Jesus. And then we get that presence again as the the conclusion of that section. Um, That wonderful gospel promise that God is with us. So as we look at the paragraph where uh, Peter then explains this, he makes the appeal to logic. The patriarch, David, they all know, they all uh, have a great deal of respect for David. He's viewed as being the highlight of Israel's history among their kings. Not a better time in many ways. Not a better king is the way they, they view it. And so he makes the appeal. David in the psalm said that he would not be abandoned, he would not see corruption, and yet we know where he's buried and his tomb is still here. His body has decayed. So verse 30 Peter says he's a prophet, which is interesting because David is anointed as a king. There is some overlap sometimes. We see men hold more than one of the anointing offices of prophet, priest, or king. But just interesting that he uses that phrase here. David is speaking of something that is to come. And he knows the promise. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 through 16, you can read about God's promise to David that one of his descendants would be on the throne of Israel forever. That's not Solomon. That's not, certainly not Rehoboam. It's Jesus who ascended into heaven and sits on the heavenly throne and rules over all of creation. And so that's what Peter's pointing out in verse 31. This prophecy of David is about the Christ. It is about the Messiah. Same meaning, anointed one, Hebrew and Greek. Uh, Christ is Greek. The Messiah is Hebrew. David was speaking about the resurrection of Jesus. He was not abandoned to Hades. True. He did not see corruption. 
true. His body did not decay. It did not rot. Jesus was raised by God the Father, verse 32, and we are witnesses. The dozen apostles preaching right then and there that day on Pentecost were all witnesses. They had all seen the resurrected Christ. They had all been sent by the resurrected Christ to share this good news, to be his witnesses to the people. So then we have the ascension, the heavenly reign in verse 33. We have the promise of the Spirit being shared with Jesus by the Father first and then poured out upon God's people, which is what now is being experienced by this crowd of Jews. So verse 34, uh, Peter continues this, The Lord said to my Lord. So David, the king of Israel, is saying, The Lord said to my Lord. Neither of those is David. The Lord, Yahweh, God of heaven and earth, said to my Lord, so the king has a Lord. God said to God, or in this case, the father said to the Messiah, the son, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Vivid imagery of triumph. Imagine, I won't tell you to imagine somebody you despise, <laughs> but you you can see the picture. A king conquers an enemy and takes over their territory and then ends up using one of the, the, the enemy soldiers as a footstool under his feet as he just props up and revels in his victory. Who are the enemies that Jesus has as his footstool? And the answer is sin, death, and the devil, as he has conquered all of those for us. So verse 36 is the end of the sermon. And it is really, it's a punch in the gut. And this is, this is a hard hit of the law for the people hearing this sermon. That they would know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. So God has made him king over creation. He is the anointed one. He is the Messiah. This Jesus whom you crucified, you have killed the king of heaven and earth. You have killed the anointed one that was sent to save you from your sins and death and the devil. So in quick reflection, since we don't get the end result here, the crowd responds essentially by saying, what should we do? They're repentant. And so Peter tells them to repent and to be baptized, every one of them. And that's what we see happen. As over, as about, as Luke's phrases it, about 3,000 souls were added to their number that day. The church grows on Pentecost. The church is born on Pentecost, as some people like to phrase it. All right. That is our reading from Acts chapter 2. That leaves us with our gospel reading today, which is John chapter 3, it's verses 1 through 17, and it contains probably the most famous verse in all of Christendom. John chapter 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, and whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. We'll come to that, but we've got a lot to cover first. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born again when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. This starts out with Nicodemus, a Pharisee. Now the Pharisees are 
a group of religious Jews that take the word of God very seriously to the point where they've really, they've built all kinds of safeguards around the law itself. They task the people with obeying God's law. And again, they've built safeguards. So there are even laws that are in place so that you don't come close to breaking the law of God. For example, the various laws about what you can and cannot do on a Sabbath day. To break the Sabbath is to profane the Lord, and it was punishable in the Old Testament as is seen as an as is seen on at least one example with the penalty of death. So there are certain regulations. You can only walk so far before it would be considered work on the Sabbath. You can only put your hand from your plate to your mouth so many times in a meal before it would be considered work on a Sabbath. The Pharisees tend to believe in the things that are supernatural. This debate comes up between them and the Sadducees as the New Testament progresses and moves forward. You see, Paul especially pits these two groups against each other. The Pharisees believe in angels. They believe in the resurrection, whereas the Sadducees don't. So Nicodemus is one of these Pharisees. Again, they're religious leaders among the Jews. They're, they're not necess- A Pharisee is not like a job. This isn't a priest, although some priests might have been Pharisees. It's, a, it's more of a class of people, and they have the fear and the respect of the rest of the Jewish society, by and large. So Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night. Why night? Well, it's out of fear. Nicodemus is afraid of what the other Pharisees will think of him if they knew that he was going to Jesus. But he does anyway. There is a there's a weak faith here. And he's coming to Jesus to learn more. That's something we can rejoice in, that's something we can be thankful for. And so he comes to Jesus and he says, "Teacher, This is rabbi, which is teacher. We know that you are a teacher come from God. Who's the we there? Nicodemus surely isn't representing the whole of the Pharisees, as we'll see throughout the Gospels. The Pharisees oppose Jesus vehemently. Maybe he's representing a small group within the Pharisees. Maybe he's representing himself and possibly a family. It's hard to say. But he acknowledges that Jesus is from God. That's important. Later on, as the debates play out, they're not going to believe he came from God. As they see him casting out demons, they accuse him of being of the devil instead of of God. Nicodemus rightly identifies no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. How much has Nicodemus been able to see Jesus do? Well, let's go ahead and take a look. I'm going to pull it up on my computer screen here. And we've got the wedding at Cana in chapter 2 is the first miracle recorded Jesus does. As you read back in chapter 2, verse 23, John says, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. So we just have a generic summary statement of what Christ did in their midst. And Nicodemus is picking up on that. He has seen it, he's witnessed some of these things, and now he is responding. Jesus' answer actually, well, it's not even an answer. I mean, the, the, the English text says Jesus answered him. But Nicodemus hasn't asked him anything in the text, right? Nicodemus just made this statement, we believe you're a teacher from God. And so Jesus teaches, right? He takes the opportunity and he just dives right into teaching. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, this is one of the four spots, if I recall correctly, that that phrase born again actually does show up in the New Testament. There's a good um, there's a good amount of Christians, a good number of them who who really cling to this born-again phrase, that we must be born again. 
This is where it's coming from. So it's scriptural language. We can't can't say that it's not. Uh, the other two uses, there's two of them are right here. The other two are in the book of Revelation, also written by the Apostle John. What does it mean to be born again, though? And that's the confusion that Nicodemus is going to have. How could a man be born when he is old? So the assumption here is that Nicodemus is old. Although, I mean, the question is just as valid of a you know, 60, 70-year-old man as it would be of a 15-year-old man. It's not going to happen, right? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Obviously, Nicodemus' mother is not present at the time of this conversation. Um, what, what an absurd picture, right? But he doesn't understand. He's confused by what Jesus has said. What does it mean to be born again? He wants to see the kingdom of God, so if I must be born again, what is that? It surely can't be this, right? I, I can't do that. That is actually part of the point. We can't do it. We can't be born again on our own doing. Like, we can't give birth to ourselves. It has to be done for us. So Jesus responds to him this time. Now Jesus actually is answering the question. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit. All right, Lutherans, water, Spirit, what is that? We see that as a reference to baptism. That the Spirit is poured out upon his people in the waters of baptism where he creates faith. This is where you are reborn. I was born on May 20th, 1988. I was born again on June 19th, 1988. And really, truly, for all intents and purposes, June 19th is the date that matters. Because on May 20th, I was brought into, I was already in the world and conceived in my sins, but I was brought into the world. I came out of the womb dead, dead in my trespasses. But then the Lord called me his own. Then the Lord washed me clean. I was born again as a child of the king. And so, yeah, uh, baptismal birthdays matter, church. Celebrate those. I mean, honestly, if you're only going to celebrate one, stop celebrating your natal anniversaries, the day that you popped out of a womb. Start celebrating your baptismal birthdays. I don't actually have a problem with you celebrating both, but... If you're only going to celebrate one, celebrate the better one. As the church, that's what we do. It's why we celebrate the Lord's Supper and we don't celebrate the Passover meal anymore. You can do an Old Testament Seder. There's nothing necessarily wrong with doing one, but it's been replaced by something better. And so, quite honestly, so is your birthday. It's been replaced by something better, far better. You have been born again by water and the Spirit. You are a child of God. You get to enter his kingdom. Not by your own doing, but it's been done for you. It's been done by Christ for you. Jesus continues, the rest of the paragraph is him continuing to teach here. If you're born of the flesh, you're flesh. If you're born of the spirit, you're spirit. And flesh perishes. born of the Spirit, born of the Holy Spirit, to have the Spirit in us, to have the Holy Spirit in us. We get to live forever. And that's coming up, verse 16. Verse 7, do not marvel, so don't be amazed. Jesus gives him a little bit of an analogy here in verse 8. The wind blows where it wishes, and we have no control over it. We can hear it, but we can't even see it. We don't know where it comes from. We don't know where it's going. And that is like the children of God. We can't see the Spirit create faith. We can't explain how it happens. We just, we see the fruit of it. We see the result of it, right? A heavy windstorm hits. You could hear the wind. You can see the damage that the wind did. So it is with faith. When we, when the Spirit does what the Spirit does and creates faith, we may not be able to see the Spirit, but we can see the work of the Spirit. We can see the fruit of the Spirit as that person confesses their faith in Christ and serves him 
for the good of his kingdom. Nicodemus, verse 9, still trying, right? We just said you can't see it, you can't explain it. He's still trying to be able to, and so Jesus continues to teach. Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? To be fair, who did, right? Who who else understood these things other than Christ himself? But Christ is the teacher of Israel. Are you the teacher of Israel? Well, no. Nicodemus wasn't. Jesus is. And that's the point that Nicodemus started the conversation with, right? Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. Now, Jesus is going to appoint people, perhaps even Nicodemus himself. Who knows? We don't, we don't get to see the outcome of Nicodemus, to my knowledge. Um, we know he's there on Good Friday to help Joseph of Arimathea bury the Christ. But what becomes of him after that, I don't have any knowledge of myself. It would seem that he's a Christian, and we'll get to see him in paradise. So as Jesus responds to him, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know. Notice the shift. God did this in the Old Testament too, right? When he was talking to the prophet Isaiah, he shifted. That was very end of the text in verse 8. Whom shall I send and who will go for us? He goes from first person to third person. He does it here. Verse 11. I say to you, first person to third person, we speak. Who's the we? You can see it's definitely opposed to to verse 2. Rabbi, we know you're a teacher of God. Come from God. And yet they don't truly know. They don't understand these things. And so this we, whoever it is that's speaking, this we knows these things. Is it the prophets? Is Christ lumping himself together with the Old Testament prophets? Is it the disciples? As in John chapter 3, he's already called several. Is it the church itself? Is it the combination of those groups? I don't know that we can answer that question, by the way. Bear witness, we bear witness to what we've seen. This is what the disciples will do, right? The prophets did too. They spoke the word of God that he gave them to speak. So the disciples speak of what they have seen as they go about being witnesses to the resurrection of Jesus in the years to come. And the church today still does that. Even though it's no longer what we've seen, it has been what's been witnessed to us, that we witness to others. You do not receive our testimony. Is Jesus referring you there as Nicodemus himself or to the rest of the teachers of Israel? Reference back to the Pharisees. They have not received the testimony. They have not yet believed that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah. And so if they can't believe these earthly things, how are they going to believe the better things, the bigger things? That's the question. But Jesus skips right over it and he goes straight to the point. Right? The next few verses are Christianity in the nutshell. That's why John 3.16 is so famous and so well known because it so succinctly and so compactly speaks and clearly speaks what God is doing to save us. So we'll come to that. Still getting there. Verse 13, No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. This is almost universally thought to be Jesus. Right? We talk of Jesus descending, his state of humiliation. He takes on flesh. He's born of the Virgin Mary. You can rattle off your Apostles' Creed there until you get to the point where, after the descent into hell, you're starting to look at the things of the state of exaltation. Um, I tend to look at the descent into hell as as almost a both and at the turning point, Um, the point where things are turning the other way now. He's being exalted. He's being lifted up. And so he rises from the dead. 
he ascends into heaven. And there's been a future tense to a lot of the conversation already. Right? As you think of verse 8, how many people have been baptized and born again? And yet Jesus can say, well, pretty much no one at that point. So it is with everyone who's born of the Spirit. Yet they're waiting for that. The church is waiting for that day to come. And that's Pentecost. And so as we think of verse 13 here, then that certainly can fit. No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. So Jesus has already descended. His ascension is yet to come. God could be looking at this timelessly because he invented time, so he doesn't have to follow the rules that we do. But the thing to consider here is also 2 Kings chapter 2 and the prophet Elijah, who did ascend into heaven because the Lord came down and scooped him up with a chariot of fire. And the Old Testament refers to Elijah as the Son of Man. Lowercase, not all caps, well, not all caps, not capitalized on the Son and the Man, like Jesus' title is. But they share that title similarly with one another. So I don't want to skip over just the, the mentioning of Elijah because he's considered the chief of the prophets. Then you have Moses lifted up here, uh, referenced here, because Elijah and Moses are going to be there on the transfiguration. They represent the law and the prophets. They represent the whole of what we would call the Old Testament scriptures. So even if we want to read verse 13 as being about Jesus, which again, almost universally I believe it is, you still have at least a, a hinting at Elijah that you can pick up on there. Verse 14, Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness is a reference back to Numbers chapter 21 where the people of God had rebelled against the Lord. They had practiced all kinds of wickedness and so the Lord, as they were faithless, sent a fiery plague upon them of snakes and the snakes would bite the people and the people would get sick and die. And so the the Lord speaks to Moses and he, well, actually the people repent. Then the Lord speaks to Moses, commands him to create this snake, this bronze serpent, to mount it up on a pole in the wilderness and that whenever people are bitten by one of these fiery snakes, they're to go out and look at that snake and by looking at it, they will live. This is the context surrounding John chapter 3, verse 16. And it's an account most people aren't too familiar with. But Jesus makes the parallel himself. As that snake was lifted up to give salvation to those who had been, well, that were dying from the plague, so this one, this man, will be lifted up so that those who are dying from the plague of sin will be saved. Now, unfortunately, they kept that snake around. It comes to have its own name. I think it's Nehushtan, and it's an idol of its own making at that point. And the people are worshiping it instead of Yahweh. But Jesus must be lifted up so that we might look on him and live. So we throw ourselves at the foot of the cross. We throw ourselves at the mercy of Jesus Christ who has forgiven us of all of our sins. Now you get John 3.16. For God so loved the world, he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And I know I said everlasting earlier. I prefer that word there just because I'm not eternal know that. Uh, we use that word eternal to mean too many different things, and I think it's confusing. So everlasting has a beginning, which we have a beginning, but no end. Eternal has no beginning, no end. Jesus is eternal. I am everlasting. You are everlasting in Christ. That gift is yours. The Greek word re re just refers to essentially the ages. In most spots where you see that word eternal in English translations. So God loved the world. This is the reason why he sent Jesus. This is the reason why Jesus goes to the cross. Because God loves us. He was willing to die for us. To atone for us. Make us right with him again. He didn't send Jesus, verse 17, to condemn the world. Jesus didn't come as a judge to destroy creation although we deserved it. But instead, he came to offer salvation. 
big difference there, isn't there? The Lord, the holy, omnipotent, all-powerful, the holy Lord of heaven and earth, who had every right to judge us for our sins and cast us into hell for, well, for forever, chose to spare us and was willing to offer up his own life to do it. He died in our place that we might not, that we would get to live forever. 